I'm Alex Heyman, your non-binary host, and this is the second behind-the-scenes episode of The Art of Asexual Warfare. Today we'll be talking about trans rights, gun violence, being an ally to disabled community, and how to select your sources when you're writing a podcast. So first, our Making History segment. And I want to talk about trans rights. And instead of being sad and all doom and gloom, because there's a lot of doom and gloom out there, and I don't want anyone to get me wrong, things are bad right now for us. Um, but I do want to talk about some good things, because I think we don't celebrate those achievements very often. The first good thing is that the Trans Rights Readathon, which was organized by Sam McKern, who is a trans author themselves, was an amazing hit. I think last time I saw the numbers, it was like 1,500 people who um, took part in the readathon and we raised about 200,000 funds for different um, trans organizations, which is amazing. Um, another amazing feat was Mercury Stardust's fundraiser with Jory. Mercury Stardust and Jory are both on Instagram and TikTok and they're really, really cool. They raised $2 million for Point of Pride, which is an organization that specifically helps disenfranchised trans people gain access to binders, gain access to gender-affirming care. So it's just great. It's amazing that they raised that much money in 30 hours. And then, Trans Day of Visibility may be over, but keep reading those books, keep talking about trans people, keep talking about trans rights specifically, and especially call your senators, especially your Democrats, and tell them to protect trans people because it is getting bad out there. The other thing I want to talk about is defending libraries. So Maryam Chaba, who is someone I really, really respect, she's an amazing activist, she shared a link to this site called For the People, a leftist library project. And it's a decentralized, autonomous, volunteer-driven formation to protect libraries. You can sign up for their newsletter. They have a different you know, different recommendations of how to help support libraries. You can get involved with For the People. They're doing plan events like, you know, sit-ins, um, fundraising, probably campaigns to uh, bud your elected officials to protect libraries. There's also a chance to do research support. So they want to do major data collection projects. They're trying to put together the first ever na nationwide database of public library board seats so people can run for office fill out their form and help them gather information about your current library seat and how many people fit for run for your library's board and things like that. And there's also a downloadable PDF, 10 ways you can help support your local public library. There are anti-censorship groups that are being formed. Um, and then actually, April 23rd to 29th, there is a National Library Week. And so um, you can work with the For the People to organize an event in your community which is focused on your local library. You can also work with your local library to do something for that week. And then there's specifically a section to advocate for New York's public libraries because, man, I thought Florida and Texas was screwed with its leadership, but have you seen the mayor of New York is trying to cut their budget completely? And so there's a specific section for you in New York if you're looking away to organize and protect your libraries. The next thing I want to talk about is gun violence. Been a lot of shootings even today in Highland Park in Chicago. I think this weekend those kids went on this protest against gun violence, and then today there's another lockdown because of a mass shooter. 
it just it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse and we need to do something and so um get involved with the local chapter of march for our lives get involved um, with the sandy hook promise um take a look at tennessee the kids in tennessee did an amazing demonstration and three representatives supported those protesters and then the tennessee congress is trying to take away their seats because they supported their constituents a lot of messed up stuff happening in tennessee right now i gotta say so get involved with those two groups specifically call your representatives march for our lives and sandy hook promise have a bunch of resources in terms of how you can get your representatives attention how you can find other people who are organizing for um, gun regulation and even how to do fundraisers to help support your projects. My final point is obviously being a ally um, for the disabled community. And this is something that I will admit that I'm coming into late. I'm really just starting to kind of get a sense of the literature around being an ally um, and the literature that the disabled community has been producing. And so all I really want to say here is that Biden expanded the White House COVID-19 team. I saw that Biden either just ended all of the Medicare provisions that were introduced during COVID or he's about to end the Medicare provisions, which means that like 14 million people are going to be without health care. The Biden administration is following the Trump rule book when it comes to COVID. If you don't report cases, the disease doesn't exist, even though people are still dying and people are still being sick. Um, we're going to have a huge spike in disabled people because of long COVID because no one told them to take it seriously. Biden is just failing our disabled, I mean, he's failing all of us, but particularly the disabled community. Everyone needs to be stronger allies. And so the thing that I will say here is um, call your representatives and tell them how important it is to take COVID seriously and that COVID isn't over, but also to start following disabled advocates and activists. So some of the people I follow, Alice Wan, clearly Alice Wan is just awesome. And she actually published two books. One, Alice Wan wrote a memoir, The Year of the Tiger, an activist's life. And she also wrote the book um, Disability Visibility, which is a collection of articles by other disabled activists talking about the needs of the disabled community and just how we failed them. Um, the other activist that I follow that I really love is um, Matthew Portland. They are a lawyer, they're in compromise, they're disabled, they're public health nerds. They have a great Patreon. They go really in-depth into a lot of the policies that presidents and Congress have put in place and how it's good and bad for the disabled uh, community. They're just a great person to follow. So follow them. Alice Wan and Matthew are on Twitter for sure. They may be on TikTok and Instagram. I'm not 100% sure. But Matthew also has a Patreon. And then... The other person that I follow who I absolutely love is Amani Barberin on Twitter. Their handle is Amani Barberin. And then on TikTok, it's Crutches and Spice. And they're just great. They've been doing a lot of great videos about how badly Biden has failed us all with COVID. They did a great series of videos about the Restrict Act, which is more privacy rights than uh, disabled rights, but they're all connected. Um, and they actually did a really great, they're doing a great series of videos about white supremacy and eugenics and how the Spanish flu, you know, happened in 1919. And then what is it, like a decade, two decades, you have a rise of fascism and eugenics movement 
and how a lot of the echoes that we're seeing from that period in the 1920s and 1930s are happening now after another great disabling event and you know an event that kills a lot of people so the echoes are happening for a reason if you're noticing them you're not crazy you're just picking up on what is happening and what historically has happened in the past um, so those three people are just great and i just recommend following them just so you get a good insight into what are some of the things that disabled people the disabled community is talking about they'll also you know connect you to other disabled activists and it's just a way to start educating yourself about these issues because they're not going to go away and like i said i'll be fully transparent i just really started this work should have started it a long time ago because all activism is connected so to be anti-racist to be anti-white supremacist you also need to be an ally of the disabled community so now is the actual behind the scenes section and the first thing i want to say is just thank you for your warm response to my first behind the scenes episode just based on the download numbers um and engagement numbers people seem to really enjoy the idea of a behind the scene episode i don't know if it gave them what they got what they initially wanted or what they thought they were getting into but i'm really excited to jump into this one so the subject for this episode is how to pick your sources and I will admit that even though I was trained as a political analyst both by the Virginia Military Institute and the University of Chicago, I have grown lax in my old age and I may not have uh, I may not be as strict in terms of, in terms of sources as I would have been when I was in college or when I was doing my master's. But the pr the same but the principles still apply. I'm just a little bit more loosey goosey with them. Um, and part of that is just because this is for fun. And two, I don't have all the resources that I had when I was in college, so there's some resources, there's some sources that I'll never have access to, and I just have to find ways around that. So, um, with that being said, when I approach a subject, the first thing I do is that I will go to Google, and I, I do it on Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna be honest, I do it on Wikipedia. I do give like my basic information from Wikipedia in terms of like, okay, this person was born then, this person did this, this person did that, okay. Or to get a sense of like how big a conflict is, or just like the timeline of a conflict. Um, and just to kind of, if there are any, you know, well-known controversies about this topic that make it to Wikipedia. And then, you know, I'm done with Wikipedia, I do a Google, um, I use Google Scholar as well. So I do Google first and I just look for videos, I look for um, specials, I look for podcast episodes, I look for blog posts, I look for, you know, magazine articles, um, foreign policy and foreign affairs. Has articles, they've been hit and miss, to be honest, um, in terms of like historical um, significance. Um, but I just try to get a base, like, what is the baseline, what is the common understanding of this topic? And so for like, when I did the Irish War of Independence, there was so much information. It was just a truckload and there were a lot of thoughts about certain events. Um, and so it was really easy for me to get a really quick view of like, you know, Bloody Sunday um, or Dev's trip to America. Central Asia is not as well covered. The Basmachi are not as well covered. And so if I can't really find anything on Google itself, I will go to Google Scholar and um, I will just kind of, you know, I'll just do a couple of key, key words searches, you know, so like Basmachi. Ibrahim Beck, um, Firenze, um, Junaid Khan, Andrew Pasha, right? Like, you have to do Andrew Pasha and Basmachi, otherwise you'll forget a lot of stuff about Andrew Pasha during World War One, which is interesting, but not relevant um, for the season. So I do do a Google Scholar, 
I once had a professor kind of talk down about Google Scholar because um, there is no like quality filter. Google Scholar just basically pulls everything from every journal and the quality control is up to you. And so I think this is where I get a little more lax than I normally would be in college. I basically try to just read the synopsis and I'll read like the first page or two if I can, if it's you know a free download. And then I'll just download it. And so I'll end up having like 30 articles on my um, desktop that um, I just have in a folder and I won't look at them again until I'm ready to talk about that topic. Um, so not the best way because out of the 30, you're throwing away probably 25. And I'll get into why in a second. Um, but yeah, so I'll download all my articles and then after I do all of that, I look for books because I am, I was born in 91, so I'm a millennial, but I'm like that old millennial that was still around where you would find information in books before you found it online. And so there's a part of me that still wants to have a physical copy of a book in my hand. So then I will look for books, um, about the topic and it's similar. Usually when you do a Google search or a Google scholar search, the book, they will recommend books to you. If not, you can go to Bookshop, you can go to Amazon. Um, for Central Asia specifically, there's a great uh, podcast show that I watch, which is called New Books in Central Asia. And that show will cover everything from like, you know, literature, Central Asian literature, Central Asian um, sociology books, economic books, political science books, history books, uh, archeological books, anthropological books, like anything to do with Central Asia. Um, so it's great. I highly recommend it. I think I found like 90% of my books from that podcast for Central Asia. Again, for Ireland, it was like completely different. All you had to do was just search Irish War of Independence and like a shit ton of books would come up. The Guardian had a lot of list of curated books about Central Asia, and not Central Asia, uh, about Ireland. But then I also noticed, and this is something we'll talk about in a second, but a lot of those sources were written by English scholars. So I use those lists uh, as like, again, to kind of give me a good baseline, but then you do have to explore. And I like to try and try to find scholars that are from the countries that I am discussing, just so you can get like that balanced perspective. So that's how I find all my sources. So it's basically a lot of searching. And then once I find all of them, you have to start reading them. Um, so a couple of things that I look out for when I'm starting to actually dig into what I've collected. I feel like I'm a squirrel. I get all my nuts and then I have to test my nuts and see if they're still good to eat uh, after a few months of sitting around. Um, the first thing I look for when I'm looking at my resources is I look at the, the date. The date it was uh, initially published and then if it's a reprint. When was it reprinted and, you know, does it say like, you know, forward added or new material added or whatever. Um, so the reason why I look for date is um, values change over time. Uh, methods change over time. Culture changes over time. And so when you read an article that's from like 1954, 1968, 1970, 1985, and I'm not joking, I found articles from all of those decades, specifically about Central Asia, um, you have to be really careful <laughs> about the author's biases, the period that he's living, um, and, and what their goal is. And so a perfect example about what I'm talking about is I had this article, I think it was published like 1980, 1980 or 1981, about the Basmachi, specifically about Ibrahim Bek and the Afghan turmoil. 
what happened in 1979? The Soviets invaded Afghanistan. So reading this article, I, did, I looked at the date, and I didn't put two and two together, and I was reading the article, and he was like, well, this is relevant because of what the Soviets are doing right now. And I had to pause, and I had to think, and I was like, wait a minute, what is he talking about, the Soviets? And then I realized that he's writing from this perspective of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And that's why he's focusing so much on the turmoil of Afghanistan and like the fact that the Soviets invaded in 1925 and onward because of Ibrahim Bet. And so when you realize that that is his um, viewpoint, his like, frame of reference, um, a lot of what he's writing is either going to be to point out you know, what the Soviets are currently doing wrong or this is just continued Soviet behavior, right? Um, or like, right of Afghanistan has always resisted Soviet might. Or, you know, the Basmati are the precursors to the Mujahideen, right? You just have all of these different um, arguments that he could potentially be making that's going to affect what he is reporting and then to potentially affect what you are reporting. And what's really interesting is that the same exact behavior, I saw the same exact behavior in a 2004 article by Foreign Policy, Except instead of the Soviets invading Afghanistan, it's the United States invading Afghanistan. And instead of, like, you know, Basmachi being the precursors to the Mujahideen, um, who are precursors to the Taliban, but it's the same people. But, like, it specifically it's specifying more, you know, oh, this is what the Taliban had in common with the Basmachi. Um, and what's interesting is when you're talking about an article that's dealing with the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, it's a lot of, like, what the Soviets specifically are doing wrong, or, like, how it connects to Soviet bumbling and, like, Russian awkwardness. Um, and then when you read articles that are talking specifically about, like, the United States invasion, it's always like, well, the Taliban are so talented these are this, this, and this. And the United States needs to understand this and this and this about the culture. Um, and so it's just, like, a different framing. Um, which I think both sides have their um they have their drawbacks um but it's something you have to keep in mind when you're looking for sources uh the other thing that i will that you also have to keep in mind especially when you're dealing with like older papers is if it's published 50 60 70 80 we're still in the middle of the cold war and so anytime you're talking about an engagement that russia has had it is, and it's written by someone in the U.S. at least, it's going to have that Cold War framing. And again, you have to think about, okay, well, if Russia was the enemy and they're writing this historical account about this guerrilla, I mean, it wasn't really guerrilla warfare. That, Russia didn't really fight um, Afghanistan in the 1920s, and even with Ibrahim back, it's kind of just standard typical guerrilla tactics. But you still have to keep in mind what does this person want the U.S. government to take away from this encounter in terms of the Cold War? Just like anything written between 2001 and 2020 about this region, it's going to be, okay, what does this scholar want the U.S. government to take away in regards to the United States war in Afghanistan? So time is going to give you a great sense of biases and, you know, is this a hot topic? Is this not a hot topic? If it is a hot topic, then there's going to be a lot of buzzwords. Is there actually going to be some scholarly work done here? If it's not a hot topic, then why is this person writing about this region? You know, it just gives you a sense of what you can expect going into that article. In international relations, 
there is this idea of a canon in terms of literature, and there is this idea that everything must be entrenched in this old canon that is written by majority cisgender heterosexual able-bodied white men um and so like the reason why you still read Mearsheimer's uh, articles that were written in like the 50s and 60s is because everything is built from this article and the whole foundation of like and like all the principles of realism come from this one article there's some benefit from thinking that way um but i've always hated it because i feel like it's it's tying all of our thought to things that were written at this point almost 70 years ago completely different world again completely different value completely different culture we need to be deal with the world in new ways and not bind ourselves to this idea that this one person wrote this article in the 50s and because Bredman sees fit it's right and your whole goal as an academic is to just prove this person wrong and you'll never will and so we'll always just constantly come back to this old canon um, it does drive me crazy a little bit, but in terms of history, um, there are some key texts that you do have to review because everyone's always referencing them. And so when you are assessing new articles, some of the things you have to look out for is, okay, is this article, there's, is there actually new information in this article? Is there a new framing of whatever historical period you're looking at? Is there something that someone is bringing to this conversation? Or is the whole point of this article to just dispute some minor, you know, detail or some historical account that this old person wrote a long time ago, and there isn't really anything new there? And so, are you are you getting any benefit from reading this new article, or should you just go back to that original article? Right? Is this article just a rehash of what that old article said? Is this new article more of a literary review? Um, is this article just reframing old ar arguments, right? Or is this, is this article new? And, and it, when it does engage with the old literature, it's just to, you know, acknowledge that it's there because you have to when you're a scholar. Or is it saying like, yeah, this person got this right, um, but I want to do this new framing here. So I use this old article as a shorthand for events that we all know happened. And we all know why, because we've all read these articles, because we all got our PhDs and you have to read them to be a PhD. And I'm using it as a shorthand so I can do this whole new reframing. Um, and so older texts, I'm not saying they're bad, they can be good as a reference, they can be good as signposts sign of where we've been. Um, I don't really believe in hero-worshipping these articles or these writers. I believe that we can get rid of some as part of the canon. I believe canon should always be rewritten and constantly reworked. Um, but I do believe that they can be good signposts. You have to be wary of them, and but they are also a good way to weed out the newer articles from... The, you know the wheat from the chaff so so date is a good way to assess you know whether it's canon or not and its biases it's also good to assess new articles in terms of what is the what is the goal of the new article once you've done that and you start reading the article you do have to assess what is its goal what is its purpose which you've touched on a little bit is it just a policy recommendation for the u.s to stay in afghanistan is it a policy recommendation for like the u.s to somehow look at how the basmachi fight and then we're going to find out how the taliban fight is it a reframing of, you know, a Basmachi leader or a conflict? Um, or is it covering something that hasn't really been covered before? And so for Central Asia, those are a lot of the articles that I was I found. It's a lot of, like, this really hasn't been discussed in English-language sources. Let's bring it to English-language-speaking people so they will learn more about this region. A lot of the Basmachi work is older 
because of the connection, like the Soviet invasion and the Af- and the um, U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. Um, I haven't really. There were a couple newer articles that I found specifically about the Bismarcki. Um, it's really exciting because there were a bunch of new pa- new articles that were published between 2019 and now about Central Asia and the 1920s in general. There's still a lot of scholarly work that could be done, which is very excited if you're someone like me who wants to do that work. But it can also be a little frustrating if you are trying to do the research and you only speak a single language or you don't have the resources, you know, get access to the archives in Tashkent or Dushanbe or Kabul, right? Um, if I could get grants, I'd love to go there and do all the research I wanted to. So um, that's the other thing you need to figure out when you're doing research is realistically, what can you read? What can you gain access to? And so there is a trick that I have found to gaining access to journal articles. Because a lot of journals are terrible because they'll gatekeep their information and they'll like charge you $50 to download one article. So one thing you can do is email the author of the article directly and ask for a PDF. And a lot of times they'll just send it because they don't see any of the money that the journals are charging. But the other thing you can do is um, take advantage of your library. So the Chicago Public Library has an agreement with a number of journals, including JSTOR. And if you sign in to the library, so you sign into your library, the library um, account using your um, ID, your library ID, and then you go to their page where they talk about the journals that they have, and then you go, they have like a link to JSTOR. You go into that link and it's, it's going to log you in using your library credentials and then you'll get access to articles for free. The Chicago Public Library also has access to WorldCat and WorldCat is a article database basically that will find articles from any academic, almost any academic journal. If JSTOR or any of the other journals that your library has an agreement with doesn't have the article you want, you can go and request an interlibrary loan and ask for a photocopy of that article. I have asked my public library for photocopies of articles in Russian, articles from the 70s and 80s, articles that have just been published. Um, Some of the the new articles will have an embargo for like 30 to 60 to 90 days, and then you can't get that copy for free for that long, and then after after that um, time has passed, the library will be able to access for you, access it for you. So some articles you won't get right away if they're like published yesterday but so far i think i've only had like one or two articles that a library couldn't find or the library didn't have access to and the same thing goes with books too if your library doesn't have a book ask for an interlibrary loan and they will track it down for you again i have had books in russian they've tracked down books in russian for me they have tracked down you know academic books that would cost like 130 dollars they've tracked down for me um They've tracked down really old books for me. The library is amazing, man. <laughs> you gotta take advantage of it while you can. And then eventually, you know, the, even if the resource is really well researched, even if it's like a newer publication or it's an older publication but still has a lot of legitimate information to share, it could have all those things. It could be, you know, it could have a lot of resources to other articles. But at the end of the day, you have to figure out how does this article fit into the goal of my episode, right? So. A lot of articles out there about Central Asia, specifically about the 1920s, are linguistic-based because there was a lot of linguistic changes that were happening 
and a lot of state building is around language and linguistics and we talked about it a little bit particularly uh, recently when we talked about like chit chat and chopin and saturday and ani um but a lot of them are linguistic based and that's not what this podcast is about so a lot of times you'll get like a bunch of hits about linguistic development in central asia and that's great great research but you don't really need it i mean i don't really need that for this point of this contact of this uh, podcast or you know it could be specifically about the basmati but it's just not information that you can work into an episode so maybe you don't use it or you have another article that's saying the same thing maybe more in more detail so you can kind of mention that you use this other article as a reference if you want but you're not going to rely on it as heavily maybe you read it once and put it aside so there are lots of different ways that you can kind of work with your resources and assess if your resource is um, useful. Um, and then sometimes, you know, I've had a bunch of times, like, Aviv Khalid's book, Making Uzbekistan, I've used that so heavily when I came to this podcast, and in some ways it's kind of weird because that podcast, that book is all about cultural and linguistic development, like, that's the main focus of it. Um, but the reason why I was able to rely on it so heavily is because you can't tell that story without telling the historical context of those developments and so a lot of so i really used his book as a map for what i wanted to cover for this podcast and then i was able to use his his references the books that he references the articles that he referenced to find out the information that i was looking for so like he does have to talk about the basmachi because basmachi are a huge part about some you know about the development of the central asian state and even though he doesn't specifically deal with the basmachi campaigns because he has to mention them and because he had to do that research, there are references to articles about the Basmachi in his reference section. You know, you read those articles and you know that those are legitimate because it's coming from another legitimate source. Like, I trust Adib Khalid. Um, I have to. I basically built my whole podcast about his book. <laughs> and But because you know that those are legitimate, um, you can go to those articles first and then you can look at those references that those articles use. And then you know that those references will be legitimate because the article that you were reading is recommended by someone who you view as legitimate. So that's another way of finding articles. If you don't want to do all the searching, just do a simple search. Find that one book or one article that you trust and then look at their references in the back and then figure out who they trusted. Um, it, there's still things you have to keep in mind, right? There's still biases you have to address. Like even Adib Khalid has biases. Um, so you kind of have to you still have to keep those things in mind, but it is another way to verify that the information that you are reading um, is legitimate, and if you share it, you know you're not spreading disinformation or sharing a biased account. So yeah, so those are some of the tools I use to verify my resources. Um, if you join my Patreon, you will be able to watch a video detailing how I use the Chicago Library's interlibrary loan system, the World Cat, the World Cat database and um the free journals that my library offers to find information so if you want to know how to do that yourself join my patreon and i hope you enjoyed this i hope it was um, informational um if there are topics you want me to talk about in these behind the scenes episodes because at some point i will i will run out of topics that i want to talk about please you know share with me i have a twitter account AOA Warfare, you can message me on Twitter, you can comment on my posts, I have an Instagram account, AOA Warfare, same thing, you can message me, you can comment on my posts. I have a TikTok now, 
which is Pepper the Phoenix, because it's my writing persona and my history persona merged into one, and I was just too tired to think of a new username. And so you can message me there. And I have an email, aoawarfare at gmail.com. You know, if you have any questions, send them my way. If there are any um, history, you know, making history topics you want me to talk about, if there are any organizational, you know, activist events that you are organizing or you want me to share, send them my way. Yeah, I'm, I'm open to, to shaping the behind the scenes episodes into things that are actually useful to you. Um, and actually, even if you have an idea for like a season you'd want me to cover or a conflict you'd want me to get to eventually, because we still have to go through the Irish Civil War and the Anglo- Anglo-Afghan War, because if I wasn't going to cover that before this episode about the Kishmatsu, you definitely couldn't see me cover it. Um, but, you know, again, message me. I'd be really eager to hear your feedback, um, especially since the first episode has such a strong response from people. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can listen to my full catalog on Spotify, iTunes, and my website, www.samswarroom.com. Please join my Patreon at www.patreon slash AOAWarfare to uh, support me and my research, and so then I can support the Chicago Public Library. Until next time, wear a mask, organize with your community, and stay safe.